Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 68 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. If you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. That really does help, um, and I really appreciate it. And it gets us a lot of exposure and gets this information out to a lot more people. So all of you who have done that, I really appreciate it, and thank you. Also, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. like to see you there. Okay, so... I've been wanting to do this episode for a little while because I think it's such an important topic and it's a topic that a lot of times we don't want to talk about, don't know how to talk about, and don't know what to do with, and that's suicide. So I was doing a little bit of research and reaching out to people who might want to come on the podcast, and I was grateful to be introduced to Dr. Ursula Whiteside, and she's going to come on the show and, and talk about this difficult topic, talk about it in a very practical way for people who are out there who are struggling currently with suicidal thoughts about what you can do right here, right now in this moment to help you get through that long enough that you can stay and find your way out. So that's great. And then also some practical advice for anybody who has a friend or relative that is struggling with suicidal ideation 
what they can do there too as well. So I was really thankful to have Ursula on to be able to talk about this and just really bring it out into the open and talk about it in a real way. And I really hope this episode helps anyone out there and does its part to get rid of the stigma of mental health issues as as well as addiction. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode or get a lot of value out of it. I guess it's a better way to put it. And yeah, I'll stop there. Let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Ursula Whiteside, and I am excited to have you on as a guest. I think the topic we're going to talk about today, which is suicide, is something that needs to be talked about and probably isn't talked about enough. So Ursula, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm so glad to be here. I am a clinical psychologist. I am out in Seattle, Washington, and I do research on suicide. I also train healthcare professionals across the United States on how to work with people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts. Um, and then also I'm somebody who is open about having my having had my own suicidal thoughts at one point in my life. So. And working on that. Tell me a little bit about how... Obviously, it sounds like you've worked through this yourself as well, but tell me a little bit about you and how you got into this work in the beginning. I moved out to the University of Washington in 1999 to work with a woman named Marsha Linehan, and she developed a treatment, and it's the most effective treatment for people struggling with suicide attempts and self-injury and who get hospitalized, people who are really, really struggling. And um, I actually didn't move out here because she did work on suicidal behavior, but because she was doing the most innovative work around treatment and emotions at the time. So a lot of therapy focuses on thoughts and her therapy really focused on emotion. So it's called dialectical behavior therapy. And I came out there as a really essentially a kid and loved it and fell in love with the work that was going on and worked with these people who were really struggling, who had had multiple suicide attempts, oftentimes for years had not been able to recover and had been really suicidal. So most people who have suicidal thoughts never have that experience. You have about 10 million people a year in the U.S. who seriously consider suicide and far fewer attempt or die. And like one less than one half of 1% of those who even seriously consider suicide go on to die by suicide in a given year. Wow. You know... Yeah, in general, people have everyone. Tons of people have suicidal thoughts. Right. I I was as I was preparing for this podcast, I was just kind of reading around on the internet about it, and I went to the CDC website and the statistics, and it just I don't know why to to say it's like the the second leading cause of death among certain age groups, just really kind of blew me away. I mean, to think that something that seems preventable is the second leading cause of death among certain age groups. Mm -hmm. And it is more common than death by automobile accident, by homicide, by breast cancer, by fire, tornado, you know, all disaster combined. It is very common. And we just have never put the resources that we have into other common killers. It's never happened anywhere close in the same way. 
Right. I mean, I think it's something that we don't want to talk about, or if it happens, we don't say anything about it, or it's so devastating to a family that they probably don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I think we just don't know what to say, so we don't say anything at all. There are, the good news is, is there are very simple things that people find helpful, people who experience suicidal thoughts, and then that people who care about people who are having suicidal thoughts but there are very simple things that we can do that make a real impact. And I'm really about trying to get that information out to as broad an audience as possible. That's awesome. And, you know, I can imagine you, you had said, you know, you had had suicidal thoughts in the past. And I know at some dark times in my own life that there were times where I thought, you know what, it would just be better to, to end it all. Luckily, I didn't and I'm here and I'm, I'm not in that space now. But like you said, I don't think it's as as uncommon as people think, especially when we're suffering and we're in a lot of pain. But um, yeah, to have some resources for people that maybe start to cross over where it really, the intent starts to grow. What happens there and, and how do we start to see that? Yeah, I'm glad that you shared your own experience. And I'm really, you know, I'm really glad you're here. It is such it can be eventually for some people, such an intense experience. And when it's that intense, it's really believable that things will always feel this way, that it will feel like there's no floor and that there's no hope and that you will always feel this unconnected or misunderstood or the problems are so big that they're just not solvable. It's so believable. It's so intense. And one very simple thing is that what we know about brains is that they can't maintain that state. So they rarely maintain the that intensity for longer than 24 to 48 hours. People don't necessarily feel great after that, but it's different. Right. And the thing is, we just don't know that we're in the middle of it. And sometimes people, yeah, they make decisions that they, they wouldn't make if they weren't feeling that bad. And Right. So when someone, if someone's out there listening and they're, yeah, that space that you're in, you, yeah, it feels like it'll last forever and you're never going to get out of it. And it's like, this is my life and I can't take this anymore. Yeah, I always tell people, just hold off on that decision to kill yourself until you're not feeling suicidal. And that might sound a little funny, but actually, like if you're really going to make such an important decision, you should probably evaluate it in more than one state. Like, and if it's a forever decision, you, you, it can, you can hold off for a little while. You can tolerate this pain a little bit longer to see, do I still feel this way later? So I always ask people, or I always tell people, never kill yourself when you're suicidal. Always wait till later, like wait at least 48 hours. See how you, you feel then as just one general rule. There are other general rules, but that's one main rule. Don't panic. Don't make any important decisions when you're suicidal. Or when you're in an emo- any kind of emotional crisis, just hold off. Hold off. And if you can just tolerate that a little bit longer, you're most likely going to move through it. Yeah, one of the things that I still feel a lot of pain in, in, in my life. And one of the things, I know I'm a psychologist. I work with people all the time. I try to t- teach them what to do. But what it comes back to for me over and over again is like actually telling someone the way that I feel, trying to describe it, even if it's so hard to find the words, trying to describe what it, what's happening and being present with them while they listen. That's one of the most powerful ways I've found to get through that situation. And I never would, I never did that because I was so afraid of being judged or people having unhelpful responses. But 
people just need to know they need to listen and not panic and be present. Right. And I'm a big fan of Linehan's work too and, and DBT and mindfulness. And it's been so helpful to me on a personal level of like working through mindfulness, being with your emotions, knowing your emotions are going to pass if you wait long enough. Right. Yeah. It's such a useful piece of information. We should get in kindergarten. What are emotions? How long do they last? What do you do with them? How are they useful? How can they get in your way? You know, just really basic stuff would go a long way uh, as an adult and preparing us for adults. Right. So it's like there are ways for you to deal with your pain. If you're out there suffering, there's ways for you to deal with it. You know, I work a lot with people who struggle with addiction. And in a way, I kind of look at that as another way of killing yourself in a way, you know, not immediately, but you're trying to get out of that pain somehow. And if you learn the skills, emotion regulation skills, you, you realize like, oh, I don't have, I, I can change this. I can shift this. I don't have to be in this pain forever. Yeah. I think that one really useful skill for when somebody's in an overwhelming emotional crisis. And what I mean is if you're a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 in terms of your emotional pain or stress, or maybe even a 14 out of 10, like it's beyond anything you've ever experienced before. One of the things that we know is that our body's misfiring. Our physiology is essentially like a computer that's on the fritz and it's having a hard time resetting itself. And there's research on something called your vagal or your vagus nerve. And what we can do is we can reset that state in the same way that you, you turn off your computer and turn it back on when it's really on the fritz. And one of the fastest ways we know that's even faster than taking a drug is uh, using cold water because it, um, if you take your face and you submerge it in, ice, in cold water, not even necessarily ice water, but very cold water, and you get your temples and right underneath your eyes and your forehead, what we know is that affects that nerve I was mentioning, and it brings down your emotional intensity very rapidly. So I coach people to do that for 20 to 30 seconds. They're facing that cold, cold water. Come out for 30 seconds, do it again, and do that for three to five minutes at least and see how you feel then. If you're really emotionally on that very edge, you're panicking, you're, it's so painful or intense, see what happens. And that that can reset things or at least bring things down in a very rapid way. It, it doesn't feel as good as drugs or at least doesn't feel as drugs good as drugs did initially. Right. <laughs> but it can change things really rapidly in the same way that overeating and self-injury and thinking about suicide can all actually help people's emotions come down because you're creating an escape. Like you said, it's getting some relief from that pain or suffering. So can you talk about that one part a little bit? The one, the one part you mentioned about thinking about suicide gives you relief. Can you tell me about that a little bit? What people don't know is that suicide, thinking about suicide is like taking a drug. It can be. For some people, thinking about suicide is a very scary thing. But for some people, it is something that their brain learns how to do as a way to escape the way that it's feeling. Because it's if I'm not here, then there's no pain. And people get, some people anyway, get calmer. 
So that's really important to know because while it makes sense that your brain wants to get relief and that that might actually work, ultimately you're training your brain towards suicide and that's not, it's not a safe way to go. Right. So, but it's, it, it makes sense that those thoughts actually bring relief because the, you know, our brain sometimes like fantasy, our brain can react to fantasy as, as reality and we can, and it can create those emotions in our body as well. So that makes a lot of sense. And I, I never really thought of it that way, but I think that's really insightful and just helpful to be able to know that. Like that's what makes those thoughts in some ways, I don't want to say normal, normal is not the right word, but it makes sense. They make sense. It makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. And I find that this is helpful, not only for people who are going through it, but also for their family members and friends who really don't understand it. Right. So if they can understand, no, this is what's happening. There's this real chain of events that makes sense that we've identified. And then even for healthcare providers, because they don't get it. Right. There's also another way to think about it too, is that some of us, we were just born being more attuned or sensitive to our environment, or we are just born having stronger, longer lasting emotions. That's the way we're wired or our biology, or we grew up in an environment that maybe wasn't safe and where that developed over time, or maybe it's a combination. Right. But for those of us who live that way, where our emotional state is naturally higher, we're just operating, walking through the day more emotionally aroused compared to other people who's we call it an emotional baseline is is much lower. But you can't tell from the outside. And you, if you're someone who's that higher person, you don't know that you're higher than the lower person and the lower person doesn't know you're higher. And when people are just more emotionally aroused and then when something painful hits, their emotions go up. If, if you're that higher person, your emotions go up more quickly. They stay there for longer and they take longer to come down. But if anyone had their emotions that high, they would be struggling. So that person who's got the lower emotional baseline and then something painful happens, they're not that high already. They don't understand why the other person is so upset or struggling so much. But if they were in that state, they would understand. Yeah, I think that's such an important point to make that people feel their emotions differently. Not everybody feels their emotions the same way. And yeah, some people just, they feel their emotions in an intense way more than other people. And then it's harder to cope and it's harder to bring them back down. And that's a struggle. And, and we have to appreciate that and let yeah. and give people, like you said, you know, I think some of these skills should be learned in kindergarten, you know, mindfulness and breathing and emotion regulation so that, yeah, anybody who has these intense emotions can learn to regulate them faster and easier and, and have success with them and actually use them to thrive. Yeah, I, exactly. I look forward to that day when we are we understand that emotions make sense and that it makes sense that some people have them more intensely and that that's not because there's something wrong with them, but that's because that's how they're wired and they need special strategies to harness that so that they can take the good part of it and use those emotions to create a better world or have the life that they want. Or, you know, emotions make amazing things happen when you harness them. I mean, we could, we could have a different world if, if we supported people who were this way it would be be really amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. What about you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about how other people can just listen to someone who's struggling, but for people out there that 
aren't struggling with this, but they maybe they have a friend or a family member or a son or a daughter who is struggling with suicidal ideation or thoughts of suicide. What do you want to tell them? I think a couple things. One, suicidal thoughts are not uncommon. And adolescence is a time when this is a very common experience. And standard treatment, and I'm not giving any kind of medical advice here, but is oftentimes to send people to the emergency room or the hospital. Um, But that's shifting because what we found is that oftentimes you send someone to the emergency room, they don't get in, or they go to the inpatient unit and they don't necessarily have a, a useful experience. There's not, a, there's not evidence to say that inpatient stays are helpful. They are in some cases if somebody has lost touch with reality, but in an ideal world, and I think the direction we're going is that people will be managed by their primary care doctor and with the support of their family and friends and then with their own skills to manage that experience. So for the family member or friend, I think it's not that uncommon. Sending someone to the emergency room or calling 911 actually probably isn't in most cases the best thing to do. But really, when I, t- I have a team of people who had suicidal experiences, they guide the research that I do and treatment development training. And they say, really, it is that don't panic, just be with me. And basically, what happens is if we're with somebody who's suicidal and we start to get upset, we're struggling with our own emotions. You know, like it's about us. And we need to remember that, like, this person is saying they're struggling and we need to be there for them and be aware, okay, my emotions are, I'm panicking right now. I don't know what to do. Well, I'm going to tell you what to do. Your job is to just be with that person and to say, I'm going to get you a sandwich. I'm going to get you a glass of water. We're going to sit on the couch. Uh, You can talk if you want to. We can watch a movie. If you can describe it, I'd love to hear it. I just want to listen. And being present, like you're really listening without trying to solve the problem or tell them they should feel a different way or say you're wrong. And then ultimately at the end, making sure you, you communicate hope for them. Not in the sense of like, it's just, it's all going to be okay because you want to be careful about that. Not that you should never say it, but more in the sense of like true statements about, I see that you know how to do hard things been through hard things before. I'm going to help you get through, you know, I, I believe in you. I really like you. I care about you. I want to, I want you in my life. Communicating that you like them, that you want to see them through this, that, you know, you have hope because you've seen them do hard things. They may not agree, but the fact that you believe that and you like them, I think is pretty powerful. A lot of people who are suicidal feel like nobody likes them. And actually a lot of times they've burned a lot of bridges. So you being that person who says you, you like them, maybe you don't have to like everything, their behavior, but that you like them can go a long ways. Right. So just being there with them a lot of times, give them the time for this to, these feelings to pass. They can see the other side. Exactly. Now you, you also have another website called Now Matters Now. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And, and I was looking at that and I think that's super powerful too. Sure. This website we developed because the treatment I was telling you about dialectical behavior therapy, it's very effective, but it's very expensive and it's hard to get. And I wanted people to have easier access to some of the elements of that treatment. And so this now matters now, like mindfulness now matters now, is a website that has teaching of how to cope with your emotions. And some of it's just 
straight teaching, but some of it's videos of people talking about how they got through really hard times using the strategies from that dialectical behavior therapy. Um, like you said, emotion regulation skills, distress tolerance skills. And there, that was funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and built by people who have had these experiences. So, you know, like I said, I have this team of people. We developed that together. And in fact, last Monday, I was just collecting film um, for addiction videos. Yeah, so that we'll be able to add more information about the substance use struggles that people have and how that relates to DBT skills. And dialectical behavior therapy has been tested with people who had opioid addiction. Yeah, and I mean, it makes a lot of sense because this is all about when we have these overwhelming emotions, especially painful ones, you know, we want them to end. We want them to stop because they don't feel good. And um, sometimes we go to these extreme lengths to do that. Yeah. We were excited just in May to publish a paper. What we found is that people who visited the website and who, when asked, said they were very suicidal, their suicidal thoughts decreased in in a a very short period of time. So under 10 minutes, they had at least some relief. And um, so I think that that can be a place you can go to even just distract yourself for a little while if you're struggling. Um, And some of the same things are true. You know, I was talking about the cold water and not making any important decisions. The same is true for managing cravings that, and the emotions that go along with that, that the same things apply. So there's a, there's steps there and there's a video, there's a crisis lines page. There's a video there of how do you get through an overwhelming crisis and the steps for how to do that, which include cold water or going to sleep, not making any important decisions, and then finding someone to ask them to distract you, to help you get out of your head for a while. Right, right, definitely. So as we kind of come to to the end, if anybody's out there and they're struggling, what would you want to tell them? I think that a lot of things, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it's it's hard to be planning for the future or trying to think broadly. But know that that when you get out of this, you can make plans for things to be different so that it doesn't always have to be this way. I think sometimes when we're in that state, we think, no, I'm always coming back here. This is how it's always going to be. I'm only better for a little while that I'm back here. That doesn't have to be true. And I think things like DBT skills or dialectical behavior therapy skills, the more you practice those over time, the easier it gets to stay out of hell. You know, no promises, but the, the consistency of doing that stuff and taking care of yourself is can make a real, real impact. Um, and then, yeah, just don't believe your thoughts. I guess the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> believe everything you think. It's worth doing it. It takes time, but it is definitely is worth doing it. It's worth working on it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So if people want more information about you and what you do, where can they find that? How can they get that? Yeah, the Now Matters Now website, I think, is going to be the most useful for people. Okay. Um, and then if, they, if you're interested in learning more about me, my website is UrsulaWhiteside.org. Thank you so much. I'm going to link that on the website. And if you have any other resources, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So if anybody out there is struggling, reach out for help. It's out there. So... Yeah, and there's so much overlap, right, between depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. Totally. And there's Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, which is also a, a great resource. So thanks for linking that. Yeah, I will link it all. Thank you so much, Ursula, for coming on. Right. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks. 
All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the links and show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 68. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out for help. Go to the website nowmattersnow.org to get some support or call the suicide prevention hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Reach out for help. All right, everyone. Once again, thank you for listening. And until the next episode, I hope you have a wonderful and beautiful day. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.